Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yes, that's the usual response. Fungi seem harmless enough. Many species know otherwise, because there are some fungi who seek not to kill, but to control. Let me ask you, where do we get LSD from? Where do you get it from? <laughs> it comes from ergot, a fungus. Psilocybin, also a fungus. Viruses can make us ill, but fungi can alter our very minds. There's a fungus that infects insects, gets inside an ant, for example, travels through its circulatory system to the ant's brain and then floods it with hallucinogens, thus bending the ant's mind to its will. The fungus starts to direct the ant's behavior, telling it where to go, what to do, like a puppeteer with a marionette. And it gets worse. The fungus needs food to live, so it begins to devour its host from within, replacing the ant's flesh with its own. But it doesn't let its victim die, no. It, it keeps its puppet alive by preventing decomposition. How? Where do we get penicillin from? Fungus. <laughs> oh. True, fungi cannot survive if its host's internal temperature is over 94 degrees. And currently, there are no reasons for fungi to evolve to be able to withstand higher temperatures. But what if that were to change? What if, for instance, the world were to get slightly warmer? Well, now, there is reason to evolve. One gene mutates, and an ascomycetia, candida, ergot, cordyceps, aspergillus, any one of them could become capable of burrowing into our brains and taking control, not of millions of us, but billions of us. Billions of puppets with poisoned minds, permanently fixed on one unifying goal, to spread the infection to every last human alive by any means necessary. And there are no treatments for this, no preventatives, no cures. They don't exist. It's not even possible to make them. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. And welcome to that clip from the HBO series, The Last of Us. It perfectly encapsulates, from a cosmic and psycho-spiritual level, what the Archons are doing to humanity, and effectively well for the last three years. I've included the mind virus fungi motif before on Aeon Bite. 
from clips of the Gnostic show Legion to the ideas of many past guests like Adrian Smith, Paul Levy, John Lamb Lash, Sean Stone, and Jerry Marzinski. These entities are real, as real as egregores or propaganda magic. Escadet says there are minor gods called Archons, who can cross a threshold. Supposedly, when they enter our world, they must inhabit a human body, which is a vessel. They cannot live outside it. If we don't address the mind parasites now, humanity is doomed to become even more of a zombie species. There's probably little hope for most meat sacks worldwide, many of whom listen to this podcast. As Groucho Marx said, I'm not crazy about reality, but it's still the only place to get a decent meal. Now, inflation and broken supply chains make it too expensive to get a decent meal. The Archons got us over a barrel. I will know every thought in your head in just a few moments. All your memories here. Senses, your fear, your suffering, all mine. Yet you of the broken places have stared into the abyss and found that rainbow bridge of Nietzsche. You eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast. You look at Jesus crucified or Odin hung on the tree and go, Gee, first time here? You've been to hell so many times that Satan gave you a parking spot. You can't play God without being acquainted with a devil. Or maybe it's like what Emile Cioran wrote. We all live on the bottom of a hell where each second is a miracle. Regardless, as Franz Kafka also wrote, beyond a certain point, there is no return. This point has to be reached. So welcome to that point of no return and that miracle at the bottom of hell. You high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Welcome to Aeon Bite, officially. I'm still just Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve. What a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it. Our astral guest will include the mind parasites in our interview. That is Jason Horsley, who will be discussing his latest work, The Kubrickon, the cult of Kubrick, attention capture, and the inception of AI. As with all his excellent books, this is a red pill suppository the world needs, a Wetiko dispeller of the highest quality. If you're into Stanley Kubrick in any way, well, consider this the black pill suppository you're long overdue to shove where the black hole don't shine. I am in a world of shit. 
But that's how the Plato's Cave story goes. The spirit of the trickster tells us shadows at every corner have hoodwinked us. The Gnostic ethos tells us to kill our heroes after eliminating Buddha on the Fury Road. And it was Harold Bloom who said that the central dictum of the Gnostics was and always will be, that which can be broken must be. To remove the mind parasites from your psyche once and for all, something must die on the cross or the tree. It's the wanting. The Buddhists will tell you, all life is pain. Pain comes from always wanting things. It's the wanting. But please keep this in mind. Your suffering, your depression, your emotional pain, and your trauma, it's all real. It hurts, and I don't like seeing you this way. That said, these painful realities, in the end, are a form of communication. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you. You are of the broken places, but you are not broken. Don't you see? Your trauma, your depression, your mental anguish is trying to speak to you in the form of a rising shadow complex. It has a story that must be heard. The shadow punishes until you allow it to integrate into your destiny. Love isn't going to save us. It's what we have to save. Pain makes us strong enough to do it. All our scars, our anger, our despair, it's armor. Our shadow constantly communicates with us because it wants a seat at the round table. You are the heroic king who isn't seeing all of his kingdom. One of Arthur's great mistakes was that he ignored Mordred, his bastard son. Sophia's second great mistake was not acknowledging her bastard son, Yaldabaoth, as soon as he was conceived. Mordred and Yaldabaoth became their shadows spectral dragons guarding the treasure of self-actualization. Like a heroic King Arthur, you must dare the cave of the unconscious and encounter the fearsome dragon. Who wants to chat like Smog in the Hobbit more than anything? The dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego, and you're captured in your own dragon cage. That's the whole idea of Jung's active imagination. You create a dialogue with your unconscious and, quote, write your own gospel and live your own myth. It's not easy, but it can be done. Many medical experts have diagnosed me as a rapid cycler manic depressive. I shouldn't even be alive or outside an institution. But through the years, after so many meetings with dragons at the bottom of a hell, miracles happened. I listened to the many me's that, yes, simply wanted to tell their story. And some wanted to be held, kissed, and told it wasn't their fault as a child. But what is grief? 
if not love, persevering. There are no guarantees. The sword of Democles hangs over my head. But right now, I can spread my gnosis and I can reach out to you and tell you that your mental illness can be used to your advantage. I'm here to tell you that ecstasy is within your grasp, as is experiencing the embrace of Sophia as she comes to retrieve her children. And perhaps that includes the deformed Yaldabaoth. Perhaps. I am not an animal! I am a human being! For those of you finding life unbearable, don't go anywhere. The shadow often takes the form of a suicide ideation complex. But, again, this mini-egregore just wants a seat at the round table. This shadow happens when the ego becomes so distressed that it wants to pull the plug on the whole operation. The ego feels trapped in a worldview it finds intolerable. In truth, though, we've outgrown our old worldview slash paradigm. The suicide impulse happens when the ego struggles under the weight of a paradigm more powerful and energized than the ego's ability to respond rationally. I just fucking kill myself. I've been so fucking depressed. Everything's black. Well, you, you have a tendency towards depression, yes. But listen to me, all right? Everything's going to be all right. I'm here. I'm with you. The kids are safe in their beds. They love you. Jungian Robert Johnson wrote that the impulse towards suicide has the seed of change connected to it. The seed of change is the recognition that something must die. And something does indeed need to die. But it's not your physical self. It's your worldview. And let's face it, your beliefs have been programmed into your mind. Naturally, our worldview is the last thing the ego wants to give up. The worldview is the ego's GPS. It's organizing principle for life. Changing our mind is the hardest thing we ever do. Akin to the ancient concept of the metanoia, which means a spiritual conversion or salvation. A new worldview is a psycho-spiritual conversion, the ultimate change. So don't go anywhere, but get on the cross or tree and change your worldview. Go to that Kafka point of no return. Trust me, your true self won't go anywhere, except up and out of the dragon's cave. The world in which you seek to undo the mistakes that you make is different from the world where the mistakes were made. You are now at the crossing. And all these worlds, heretofore unknown to us, they must have always been there, must they not? You have a fantastic mission and purpose. I swear on my soul that you do. You are crucial to Sophia's rescue operation. Jason probably agrees, as he's written personally and honestly about his own struggles. But all together, we can eradicate the Arconic Fungi. Let us get closer with our interview with Jason. 
I always let her go. And that is your truth, Connor O'Malley. I don't want it to be that. Now it's for real. Now she's gonna die and it's my fault. And that is not the truth at all. You were merely wishing for an end of pain, your own pain. It is the most human wish there is. I didn't mean it though. You did, but you also did not. How can both be true? How can a prince be a murderer and be loved by his people? How can an apothecary be evil-tempered but right-thinking? How can invisible men make themselves more lonely by being seen? I don't know. Your story has never made any sense to me. <laughs> because humans are complicated beasts. You believe comforting lies while knowing full well the painful truth that make those lies necessary. In the end, Connor, it is not important what you think. It is only important what you do. So what do I do? What you did just now. You speak the truth. That's all. You think it's easy? You were willing to die rather than speak it. So tired. So tired of all this. And sleep. This is the AM Bide interview. And with us, we have the pleasure, as always, to have Jason Horsley. This time to discuss his latest book, The Kubrickon, The Technology of Evil. Jason, how are you? And thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Miguel. Just to point out the, the subtitle, uh, you got the wrong subtitle because that was a very early thing and it, they got subtitle confused with my upcoming book, Big Mother. So um, the correct subtitle is The Cult of Kubrick, Attention Capture, and the inception of ai oh okay i like the former one but yeah i think for uh marketing purposes keyword purposes the second one's much better <laughs> well, as i say the technology technology of evil is the subtitle of the next book as a follow-up oh okay yeah, awesome I haven't, got to, I haven't got to the evil yet <laughs> it take, well, takes it's... me a while to work myself up to it <laughs> to get yourself down into into Hades like a mystery religion huh <laughs> well awesome yeah I enjoyed uh the Kubrickon, so I think we should definitely cross it because the die has been cast uh as you say this is the first book written about Stanley Kubrick by someone who doesn't like Stanley Kubrick as you write in your book Jason all your other works are of individuals who are at one time your gurus or spiritual uh, inspirations Carlos Castaneda Philip K Dick uh Alistair Crowley but this time you wrote a book about somebody that you didn't even like why did you do this right I, I, I got that question in the last interview it's uh yeah I guess I do put it front and center <laughs> um why did I do it how was I unable to avoid it well I mean there's that saying that if you uh if you really dislike something you form a bond with it anyway it's just, it's only if you're really neutral or indifferent to something that you don't uh create a bond or some sort of connection to it so if you really love something you create a bond and if you really hate something you create a kind of bond too so I guess I'm uh, inadvertently bonded with Kubrick 
through because as you know uh, if, if your listeners don't uh movies were kind of my religion in a way because i grew up without a religion atheist parents and uh nature was a, a vacuum something had to fill that void of meaning and for me it was movies and and so i loved movies and i started uh reading criticism of movies and writing my own reviews and scripts and stuff at a young age in my adolescence and one of the uh people i discovered was pauline kale and uh pauline kale never liked kubrick's films either and uh so she was kind of an ally in that formative period in my uh resistance to or defiance of what later became the kubrick cult or what i later became aware of as the kubrick cult so i kind of something about kubrick was was a threat to my emerging sensibility there because i loved movies and i admired movie directors and i wanted to become one but um the 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 dawn of movie directors even back then in the in the early 80s was pretty much kubrick there are a couple of other contenders but Kubrick was certainly in the top 3 uh and uh the fact that he that fact alone was very disturbing to me because I just didn't like his movies so I think even from a fairly young age I was like what what's going on with Kubrick like why is he so overrated was my viewpoint back then and into my 30s I just considered him the most overrated filmmaker of all time and that was enough for me enough of a reason for me to be curious about him and to write about him a little bit i didn't write essays about him or his career or his films but i did refer to him quite a bit in my early film books um and i did like his earlier movies up to dr strange love uh and then in the in the 2010s i'm not sure around 2014 somewhere around that time I ended up getting sucked into what became the Kubrickon uh not just the book but what the book's about and uh that was a combination of factors but I think the main the most important one to mention is what I refer to as the cult of Kubrick which is a which is an internet based cult as compared to the the cult of Kubrick that was around even in the 80s which was the intelligentsia and the film critics uh, not counting Pauline Kael who who basically adored kubrick and thought he was the you know the greatest thing since uh, dw griffith <laughs> i guess um but but then later this this internet based cult emerged which room 237 explores uh, by rodney asher that film documentary which is all this endless meticulous analysis of kubrick and the the deification of him in a different kind of context as a, as a sort of a living a visible human archon of the of the arts an archon of the arts might coin that phrase there uh and that and i knew some of these people you see i knew i was i wrote uh, a piece for the synchromistic book um and i knew various synchromistics and they some of them anyway they held kubrick up as their lord and master so i had a personal stake in it at that point it wasn't just the, these faceless critics out there it was actually people i knew and i kind of i started engaged in this uh struggle with them to try and um show them that they had been hoodwinked 
that they had been lured into a trap. And uh, that's what I ended up exploring, researching, uncovering uh, that became the Kubrickon. It's a great read, yeah, as you write in uh, your book, uh, this is the ego's dream made flesh, and it makes Kubrick a mythical figure of the satanic kind, a demiurge worship for all the wrong reasons. And uh, as you write, too, it's uh, some critics even go as far as say, well, you just have to watch it twice to get Kubrick. It's like, what? You have to, like, change your mind like Alex in a Clockwork Orange? force yourself to like him <laughs> and uh that's what uh, that's what really happened is that uh i think uh for some reason i was thinking of the movie uh mystery men uh where everybody's talking about the sphinx and they're going ooh he's terribly mysterious and you get this guru who's going to train superheroes and the uh ben stiller character just realizes wait a second this guy is just uh this is all empty shit it's nothing is that do you is kubrick kind of like that he created the myth to hide whatever it was so that we're going to oh, talk oh, about oh, later yeah well that uh it's interesting point to begin at because that would have been my view up until the period where i started the kubrickon like almost 10 years ago was it basically is the void where the emperor has no clothes um but through looking more and more into that abyss uh, having it stare into me um i began to believe at least i began to see what i thought was evidence of uh, an intentional void that kubrick wasn't simply i mean first of all it's absolutely true that kubrick did engineer his own legend he was very he made he went to concerted lengths efforts like when you said that this is the first book written by somebody who didn't like Kubrick it just occurred to me for the first time that if Kubrick was alive I might not have been able to write this book you'd be in his crosshairs yeah well, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know actually it is I, I, I it may be vain of me to think he would have even noticed because it's such a small press and so on and so forth but I think if he had heard about it he might have he might he might well have cared um, because he he was very controlling about what was published about him insofar as a, a an artist can control his press obviously he couldn't control every film critic and every reviewer but um in terms of the books that were published he did stop at least one book being published because it was too impartial right it wasn't right. It wasn't just a eulogistic of him so 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 yes yeah, so kubrick really did work very hard on cementing his legend as a great filmmaker or the greatest filmmaker and this is um uh this is a part of my thesis and uh, as it pertains to this the emperor has no clothes idea my 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 thesis isn't that kubrick was um uh like there was nothing going on there it's just that I, i'm arguing that he wasn't actually an artist in the way that he's been raised up and in the way that he wanted to be raised up that he was working on something much more methodological uh much more scientific with a specific goal that was really independent of creating good movies that the movies were were means to a, another mysterious and hidden end and the emptiness at the center of his movies wasn't simply as i used to believe due to an emptiness in kubrick uh but 
a deliberate intentional emptiness which has to do with a kind of um I'm not sure if the term would be mind control, but perception management, let's let's use that term, um, by which, as I said at the beginning, I think nature abhors a vacuum. Well, the human psyche abhors a vacuum too. So if we go to a movie, I'm sure there's a, a known phenomenon of this, but it's not coming to mind right now. If we go to a movie and it's missing certain elements, um, I'm thinking also on the internet, like with... Um, like one of the reasons that smileys were invented is because we tend to, because text is very cold, and therefore we tend to project onto a line that we read in an email a certain human emotion that isn't necessarily there, because we can't know, based on the text, what the person meant, what they were actually feeling. And this is why the smileys became important, so you could stick a smiley or winking, whatever, to let us let the person know what the emotional tone of those lines is well kubrick i believe intentionally made uh cold movies uh knowing that uh human beings are emotional creatures and they need to have things imbued with emotion and if there isn't human emotional feeling there they will imbue it with their own emotions they will project onto this relatively blank screen there's that famous thing as well about that. I think it's Eisenstein. There's a picture of a, of a man's face and um, it gets juxtaposed with different things. So first of all, the face is juxtaposed with a plate of food. Then it's juxtaposed with a naked woman and so on. And people who, according to what it's juxtaposed with, they see the face as hungry or lustful or afraid, right? Uh, and so in this analogy, the Kubrick movie is the the face that's basically blank and expressionless and the following image whether it's the food or the naked woman is the audience's own psyche mm -hmm. so when you juxtapose something that's kind of empty of human uh, elements with a human being that human being will then imbue the, the the emptiness with their own consciousness so that that's very central to the Kubrickon thesis and it's consistent with my initial like for years and years for decades even my feeling of unease around Kubrick films that they were somehow empty and that they were cold and that they were devoid of human feelings which is what Pauline Kael wrote about them among other things uh, it's just that I never suspected until much later that that might not only be intentional but intentional uh, with a a goal or a, or a, a purpose that was really entirely independent of cinematic art and to do with some whole other agenda. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about it, but it makes sense. I mean, in one section, uh, Jason, you compare Hitchcock to Kubrick and you write Hitchcock catered to, uh, to audiences, but Kubrick aimed to confound them. And you show, you know, how many uh, movies, uh, Hitchcock made a ton of movies and there's a, a warmth, a sort of a, uh, hermetic power to them while Kubrick was as you write uh, offered uh, something more than mere entertainment and uh, somehow as you write he didn't have a hit uh, after a clockwork orange but he still had carte blanche to basically do any movie he wanted regardless of how much money it lost so something was at play there but I guess we can dispense with the idea of uh well, it's interesting because this this egregore or this thing happened after he died. Maybe he engineered it or not, but 
the idea that Kubrick is like Trump. He's this insider that's part of the machine and he knows the machine or Elon Musk. And he has, he's come out and he's trying to tell us this is how we can bring down the machine or drain the swamp. But this sort of persona of, as a prophet that Kubrick has, we can pretty much dispense with that one. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's good. That's <laughs> fine with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's a very powerful one. Again, it, it happened after he died. That's the interesting part. So it's like wondering, did he was he planning to make himself that way? Or again, did we fill in the blanks looking for a savior? Uh, well, I mean, something began after he died i suppose in terms of as i said the cult of kubrick that really was generated via the internet i mean the internet was around when he died and it was and it was beginning when he in the 60s with darpa as i write about so um kubrick he didn't he was around long enough to see at least the beginnings of the success of his project if i'm even at all right in my thesis because i don't have any smoking gun and i don't even really have very much hard evidence i mean it's, there's some hard, hard evidence in the book i think mm-hmm. but but not really specifically that he was uh, planning to uh use the internet or he, he was uh making movies that he foresaw would be somehow synthesized with the internet and the collective consciousness that uh, informs the internet and that hooks into the internet as in human humanity um so that the both would be transformed like his movies and his reputation and his uh all that would be transformed by the internet but the internet would also be transformed via the the influence of the films now it's it's not obvious unless you look for kubrick on the internet but if you do (laughs) if you go on youtube and look for kubrick videos you'll find a hell of a lot of kubrick videos and they're not oh my god yeah yeah, i mean most of them aren't critical as in i don't mean i mean they're they're not by film critics critics they're they're this second class that i'm talking about um who are looking for clues to the nature of the universe in Kubrick's work. Now that I would argue that he did, that he did foresee and anticipate and even uh, calculate in advance. I I do. I really suspect that. I mean, I can't, as I say, I can't prove it. Um, But uh, it does seem as though it's consistent. There's a continuum really between this kind of fanatical, uh, basement dweller fascination with Kubrick of sifting through his work through clues to the riddle of the, the Sphinx and the, the kind of obsessive attention that he was already generating from audiences but mainly critics and other other filmmakers uh, pre the internet and that as I said earlier there's, there's no doubt that he in, in my mind anyway that he he intended that and that he uh he performed various acts or he made his movies in certain ways and uh, there's there's an awful lot of different clues and indications which hopefully i mean as many as i could find are compiled in the kubrickon that kubrick was intentionally creating uh a meta narrative not just through his movies but around his movies and around him uh, him himself for example the moon landing like the idea that kubrick faked the moon landing i think it's highly likely 
more likely than that he actually did fake it that 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 meme was started by Kubrick or at least that he was conscious that uh, it was going to be created that he was somehow complicit with that mm, I think you make a good argument in uh in the book for sure and again you and I have followed uh, Philip K Dick so the, his idea of how uh technology and the human psyche can infect each other like a virus and create new things that aren't exactly positive it would make sense that people in the 60s and 50s were like well we're gonna farm this we're gonna herd and we're gonna breed this sort of interaction of the human mind and technology so yeah. for the, your thesis and again let me read this for from your book and we can go from there but you write, I propose that Kubrick's later films are cultural artifacts designed as scientific instruments to interact with human consciousness and cross bond with it, create an obsession as a means of gathering data from the species and importing it to a machine database. It's like a, I guess, like a Trojan horse. In other words, we were, we're part of this experiment to make the machines more conscious and somehow make us less conscious is that it jason yeah that's it and it's it's very it is i'm glad that you found that passage because it'd be impossible for me to try and recreate it just through my thinking processes right. and it's very hard to to just flatten it out like that um and yeah, you're, you're already working on your next book you know, <laughs> well, yeah, like, yeah. I'm busy <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I'm done with it I was actually I thought I'd retired from writing by the time I ended up getting the Kubicon ready for publication so it was like a haunting or something <laughs> um but but this I mean it is a, like my next book my hopefully my last non-fiction book we'll see is is very much specifically about metaphysical entities and and how they are uh, feeding on our consciousness and using our psyches for to inseminate themselves to you know to give birth to themselves and our bodies for that matter so that's why I say it took you know I had to work my way up to really going into the technology of evil and um it is extremely difficult to talk coherently about the subject of consciousness as a currency as as a What's another word for that? It's it's more than just a medium, but something that can actually be harvested and siphoned off and then re rechanneled. Like because we don't have a uh we don't really have a way to quantify consciousness, even though we're in it and we experience it and nothing happens without it. But if we look at the internet, which we do every day, <laughs> I mean if we if we think about or observe how we interact with it it's 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 conscious interaction with consciousness like you and i we're two consciousnesses that are interacting through the internet uh -huh. although the internet per se isn't conscious everything the internet is built out of consciousness because every programmer that we use was built by conscious programmers and then uh those programs and even the hardware that gets even more mysterious there is is it is informed like accumulatively by that consciousness so, i mean facebook is the easiest go-to although i don't use facebook maybe twitter is pretty much the same that you can see that that's a software if you will that has taken over the planet and that is constantly gathering more and more data like it's getting more right. and more 
imbued with human consciousness by the endless interaction and by the same token human beings are interacting more and more through facebook or other social media and thereby while the the media itself the software etc is becoming if not more conscious at least more informed you know more more saturated with this data that comes out of consciousness the human beings themselves are becoming potentially uh, less and less conscious because they're just clicking like you know they're just uh mm-hmm. they're just scroll they're being uh, processed by algorithms they're being their decisions are being determined by algorithms more and more so that requires less and less consciousness you don't you don't have to think of anything to say well, it's like an email as well you start to write i don't use gmail but you start to write a sentence and the, the program right. will tell you how to finish it right <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, these are the days, and obviously Kubrick was meant to do AI. Maybe that was the climax of his experiment, and yeah. uh, I think that's what he was going for. Yeah, and here's a, another quote to keep it in perspective for the audience. Uh, you say the first your first thesis is somewhat fantastical, largely speculative, and possibly unprovable. And I'm saying, yes, you give a lot of data. You make a good argument. Going back to quoting you, you say, it is bluntly put that Stanley Kubrick was involved in a secret project to create artificial intelligence via stimulating and harvesting of collective human attention, using a combination of of his film opus, Opus and the Internet to do so. The second hypothesis or hyperthesis is that Kubrick's career was shaped, directed, and enable as part of an ongoing government, military, scientific, and intelligence program of social, cultural engineering, popularly known within the conspiratainment circle as a psyop, a psychological operation. So that's it right there. And uh, I think you put uh, you put a good arguments to it. I mean, Kubrick was connected to all these power players, right? Well, yeah, and. I do spend some time in the book uh, listing the the different correspondences now. I know that people who aren't conspiratorially minded, or or I might prefer just to say they're not 
educated or informed about the nature of the world um i know there's a tendency for them to think well it's just joining the dots i mean you could list a whole bunch of other data and so on but that's not that's really missing the point that i mean i, I think i do demonstrate reasonably persuasively that kubrick's career was uh facilitated that he, he had help from a very early stage in his career and certainly it's clear that uh, as you mentioned, I mean, he had an, an inordinate amount of power and freedom within the film industry that was not based like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas. It wasn't based on making money for the studio. No. It was based on his reputation. Now, you could argue, well, the studios do, obviously, the clout of having Kubrick on your payroll or uh -huh. making movies for your company, that's better than money. That's worth more than gold, and that's fair enough that... Uh, that could be a sufficient explanation if it weren't for all these other things. And also if, if, if the world wasn't the way that some of us know that it is, and really all of us should know by 2023, that um, the world of mass media and entertainment is every bit as essential to the maintenance of hegemonic powers as the military uh so people they don't you know it's not just some crapshoot and it's certainly not some meritocracy whereas if you're really good you manage to get successful and you manage to become uh, an instrument of global propaganda well no obviously that doesn't it doesn't work that way i mean movies are the most powerful tools of propaganda of the 20th century certainly and well, it's a bit up for grabs in the 21st century because things are morphing so quickly. But, um, yeah, so uh, for Kubrick to have been so supported and so propagated himself, for him to accrued, develop the reputation he's developed, uh, he was clearly perceived as of great interest, as an asset to the, the machinery of those, you know, those different factions um and uh so what i'm arguing because i, I think it, it there are cases perhaps where a filmmaker or another artist is mostly unwitting and mostly unconscious of their being useful uh i'm thinking of philip k dick but philip k dick wasn't really that successful while he was alive but i think now that he's now that he's as big as he is after he's dead um some of us have to question, well, what was it about his work that was perceived as um, something not to be suppressed, but to be promoted and to be incorporated into the machinery of, of the, the superculture and the state controls and all the rest of it. There really was something about Dick's work that was deemed compatible with a transhumanist drive unfortunately for dick but he's an example of somebody i think who was who was genuinely sincerely working away in his own basement so to speak and he just he, you know he kind of tapped into the zeitgeist in such a way that unfortunately later his work was was able to be co-opted but with kubrick uh the evidence suggests that he was very much a conscious witting player and that he was deeply involved in um trying to change the world let's say i mean like he, he he was very ambitious nobody would argue against that but i'm arguing that he was far more ambitious than simply a filmmaker who wants to make the greatest movies of all time that he was he was working towards a 
a different goal that, as you just read in that quote, was compatible with uh, the larger goals of social engineering and uh, with a with a scientific technocratic superstate. I mean, it's no secret that Kubrick was a, a, a technocrat, that he was in sympathy with the technocratic uh, principles and values. Uh, he made no secret of that. And his only film that has any kind of optimism in it is 2001, which is considered generally to be his great work. And if not, you know, one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, and um, that the optimism of that is is a is a scientific, technological, even specifically transhumanist kind of optimism. Exactly. As you write, Jason, 2001 is a religious fantasy disguised as a scientific parable. So it was, a, and, and as you write too, it came at the time when LSD and the whole psychedelic movement was going. The movie is like, it's a perfect fit for sort of the psychedelic Terrence McKenna religious experience. And uh, it did its job, didn't it do it? <laughs> it did it worked perfectly <laughs> yeah i mean i guess you and i were not gonna <laughs> argue over this and maybe it'd be frustrating for viewers because many of the listeners i mean many of them probably will disagree and they'll want somebody to question this uh viewpoint but certainly that that 2001 even today is is held up as this epitome of artistic genius right. and vision, visionary brilliance, not just by filmmakers and film critics and film lovers, but within, uh, I'm not sure what we call it, but uh, I'm not, I don't know how to really categorize, but there's a lot of people out there who aren't mainstream. Maybe I should just say within the second matrix, people who are into conspiracy, uh, and into occultism and into self-expression and creativity and believe that they really are uh, at least aspiring to being on the cutting edge of the uh, of the revolution of consciousness or whatever, you know, whatever kind of term. And certainly psychonauts, as you point out, people who have been had their consciousness and their perceptions and their beliefs shaped by psychedelics. So it's not necessarily some of the best people, but certainly some of the people that you and I are going to have a lot uh, of contact with and a lot in common with, uh, and generally feel that uh, they're simpaticos. I have found that it's very it's very hard to find people who will question the brilliance of 2001 and Space Odyssey. It really is like a religious artifact to many of these people. That's it. It's a metaphysics. But it does promote the ideas of transhumanism and AI and humans evolving away from the planet, all that, all the stuff that is a big issue today. But it was, we have to admit, it was facilitated by uh, Stanley Kubrick and um, Arthur C. Clarke, the little pedophile, the I don't want to say the word because it's the internet, but <laughs> we know how Arthur C. Clarke was. <laughs> and as you and uh, we talked in our last interview, I mean, this is not, uh, you mentioned uh, movies are the great tool of propaganda. There's the apocryphal story of Stalin saying, if uh, give me Hollywood and uh, communism will rule the world in two weeks. And uh, we know that the military, the CIA is behind all these movies, whether it's the new Top Gun or anything, or 
we talked in our last how the exorcist was used to be able to measure people's heartbeat and trauma and all that so this is happening and it is happening it's almost like it's almost like they would the evil villains would be stupid not to do it right i mean it's like right in your lap <laughs> yeah yeah but on the, on the other hand by the same token uh it's it's very hard to not to get split down the middle by this because we grew up on this propaganda um and it i mean there's a, a great jacques comment in his book propaganda that the power of propaganda is 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 that it relieves the modern man's sense of loneliness and that's like that's quite a surprising statement because we think of propaganda in this very specific way like it's big brother and it's basically berating us or bullying us or manipulating us into being subservient but no, I mean, it's it's certainly in the West, the propaganda is far infinitely almost more subtle than that. And uh, it's actually making me think of these demonic entities that I'm writing about now, that they, they have to ingratiate themselves to us. The propaganda has to appeal to us in this very deep way, and it has to meet a need that our parents and our society and our schools and all that are not meeting. Uh, and uh, and thereby insinuate itself into our consciousness. So we can, as I found out to my uh, my my chagrin, my regret, uh, we can get as informed as we like about the reality of movies, etc., being part of this widespread perception management propaganda campaign, if you will, that's gone on for well decades, if not hundreds of years uh but we we don't necessarily stop watching the movies and we we can't necessarily uh get them out of us like i might i pretty much stop watching movies but if i still can't think of jaws or good the bad and the ugly without enormous affection i just think they they right but but i know that i can't that's a double standard right I, i might be immune to kubrick but that doesn't mean that the other things that I like uh, are, are any less pernicious. Right? It's just that I let them in. I let them in. Right? I let them inform my sense of who I am. So I don't know what the cure is anyway, Miguel. Uh, exactly. Well, maybe I do, but it's not in the Kubicon. <laughs> I didn't get <laughs> for a next. Yeah, I'd say just uh, knowledge is an important one. And I want to keep repeating this to the audience so they get it. But you also write, it's engineering the technology that is engineering our consciousness to imitate them. It's a trap for our consciousness. It's sort of a breeding interaction. And I think uh, you make a you make a very good argument for this. And uh, again, we can go Philip K. Dick, Marshall McLuhan, Heidegger, People were talking about this uh, sort of interaction and how consciousness would shift and infect each other and who would have control of it and all that. So, but it, just a quick question. You're talking about uh, these mind creatures. I was thinking, have you gone like full circle with Carlos Castaneda and his predators and these mind parasites? Uh, it depends what you mean by full circle. I mean, I although I had to reject 
Carlos Castaneda as a, as a false teacher, mm-hmm. um, mostly because the guy went mad. So it generally <laughs> not a good ending. <laughs> same way about Nietzsche, really. Like you don't really necessarily want to handle the radioactive <laughs> materials that you know destroyed somebody else's life. Right. That's obviously risky. Um, so, but although I I I had to except that I couldn't trust those books and all the person who wrote them. I never really reneged on my felt sense that they were imbued with profound truths. I've never, never, I never thought anything but that. I never changed my mind about that. It's just, uh, uh, is it safe to, to talk or write about them? Uh, if, well, I mean, I even I did even explore this some ten years ago. Like, how could we write about the flyer mind or the the inorganic entities, inorganic predators was the term I coined back then, uh, without uh, using their mind to do it? Like, they, yeah. they've given us the language. They've given us right. So, and you're inviting them in every time you write about it or talk about it. They're coming. Well, I'm in a, I'm not sure about that one because they're already in anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's mm-hmm. more like. Uh, just that, just that, that actually writing and talking about these entities may well be playing into their hands because, I mean, if they're, they're, they're going to exercise their control, their sway over our consciousness whenever they can, and they're going to be particularly uh, alert to doing so when we put our attention on them, like, oh, we're going to get rumbled now, we better move it, you know, come on, bring the whole team in now and just scramble his brain completely. And we'll turn it into something salacious and exciting or whatever they do, or fear mongering that generates fear. Um, but yeah, to answer your question more directly, uh, I guess I have come from full circle in the sense that things that I feel now that I wrote and talked about prematurely in my 20s and 30s, I now feel in my 50s that n- not only am I ready to to address them again uh, or in a new way, but it's become imperative to do so. Um, that it's... We, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I'm I'm all for these. Uh, I believe so, whether it's Castaneda or Colin Wilson or others who have talked about these alien mind parasites. It's important we know about them. Personally, that's how I feel. Yeah, but of course, we, the thing is, we do know about them from these other authors, right? So, and that didn't, that hasn't worked so far. So, it's also important that we know that the stuff we don't know about them, including we don't quite know how to to talk about them, much less get free of them right that's mm-hmm. that's, guess exactly. that's the, the only objective is to get to get to rid our lives of these entities and not be controlled by them uh so that's the that's the real question is how do you address if you're if you're swimming and even drowning in a sea of entities what do you do about it how do you address <laughs> that reality in a way that will lead you to to solid dry land yeah, that's a good question. Many options. I mean, we're being eaten by microbes and bacteria and many creatures inside of us. So each one of us is an entire world, and that includes the metaphysical world. So it's a jungle out there sometimes, I feel. <laughs> well, that was Gastonada's view. I know that. We live in a predatory universe. Right. Um, yeah. And so, but that so that's one aspect of reality. But I don't think it's the whole thing. I think it's uh, a question of uh, 
well yeah we're stuck in a, a particularly dark place right now collectively as a species and the only way to move out of it is to fully recognize it uh and that so that's the the bottom line seems to be just uh how much are we pretending isn't out there like with the, i probably shouldn't mention this because i don't want to get you taken offline but with the, the the last couple of years with a certain so-called medical cure <laughs> yeah highly experimental at best <laughs> um clearly we can see well some of us feel we can see that ignorance was not the right policy there it didn't matter if you believed how fervently you believed that it wasn't going to harm you or that the government knew what it was doing or that you can trust the medical establishment those beliefs were delusional uh but there's clearly a lot of investment then in in continuing to believe that so as always the challenge is is to just be willing to uh to see what's actually going on uh before you make any rash decisions yeah for sure and for the audience i was thinking uh uh because many millennials and gen Aziz think that movies only started this century so there might be in a way oh well we, we've never watched Kubrick who cares but as you write the Kubrick of course had many disciples I mean a good master isn't good just gonna you know just stop because he's gonna make sure that the virus continues so as as people joke on the internet uh when you watch a movie by Christopher Nolan who's one of his disciples it's like it feels like you're being prodded and I'm talking like you know somebody stroking your like watching a Hallmark movie where your heartstrings are so you feel like you're being hit from all sides your blood is your heart rate goes up you're being hit on all sides but when you walk out uh you have like a sense of emptiness and comedians have joked about this and I think that's what makes uh people can relate who are younger think of a Christopher Nolan movie you walk out and almost feel like you've been uh I don't know violated and you feel kind of exhausted and uh yeah it's almost like somebody has taken part of your soul right Jason well it seems again part of uh what I was just referring to a moment ago is that this we're not living in a in a time in which escapism is is uh, a good strategy right <laughs> like the world the world is I would say literally going to hell mm-hmm. and so life could hardly be more dramatic it could hardly be more at stake we're engaged know it or not in spiritual warfare now and most people are not yeah. engaged. they're just cannon fodder for these entities but nonetheless they're on the battlefield and the bullets are you know tearing through their flesh almost literally with this damn medical policies but anyway um so so I think that that's an important part of the context that if you're escaping from a terrifying reality that you're not willing to even admit is is what it is so you're not even aware of why you're doing it and then you go to a movie to have your senses pummeled <laughs> for two or three hours the movies are getting longer aren't they uh, yeah. uh, then of course you're going to feel drained and, and numb and, and empty afterwards because essentially uh yeah you, you've um you've laid yourself open to just be to be uh absorbed by the very thing that's turning your life into hell so uh, I, I mean i think I, I i i do wonder like how many 
you're talking about younger people do they even watch movies anymore i think that they might never mind kubrick i think they might just be thinking well movies i don't you know i don't even watch movies and they don't watch it in one sitting they'll look at their phones they'll do yeah they have no not like we going like you said that shamanistic mystery religion of sitting in the dark and letting it just hit you that's over that's over i mean certainly cinemas are pretty much over right. but even i mean the, the the younger generations don't have the attention span as you just pointed out for a movie uh even on youtube probably mostly they don't watch something if it's over 10 minutes or something <laughs> and um inseparable from this which could bring us back to the kubicon uh and this would seem like a good thing but sadly it isn't um I think younger generations are much more in, into interactive media. They want to actually be creating it. They want to be participating in it. So if it's either social media or it's their own platforming or and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, yeah, they might not, this might not be seem relevant to them in terms of Kubrick unless they're into conspiratainment and whatnot. But, uh, and I'm, you know, I wouldn't, want to have written to publish a book about Kubrick if it was only about Kubrick and what he did 30 20 years ago uh rather as as a an example of one of the architects of the current uh, artificial intelligence algorithm informed uh psychic harvest machine called the internet but it's more than just the internet I and mean, we're moving into the internet of bodies now right? whereby the whole planet, the aim is to make the whole planet including or especially human bodies part of a, a semi-sentient uh kind of linkage machine linkage uh network infrastructure i don't even have the words for these things unfortunately because we try not to think about them too much but everybody will know what I'm talking about. Some people, even some people listening, I mean, may even think that this is a good thing, although I hope not. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, don't think so, no. No, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of shows you've had in the past, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be a Luddite, but I don't trust what's down the pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, we don't, we can't afford to be Luddites. I mean, we couldn't be doing this now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if we were but certainly to be preparing for a a Luddite future, Mm -hmm. I would say is not only sensible, but sane. I mean, that it would be insane and delusional, not unless we're very old, to not be preparing for that, because the trajectory is is very much the Matrix. Unfortunately, that movie's been completely tainted in a number of different ways, but they did kind of get it right at the time as a metaphor, uh, that that's the future that we're headed for is human beings being embedded into a machine uh, intelligence structure and becoming like living batteries whose physical energy, uh, kinetic energy is, is used as a power source and whose consciousness is used to inform and uh, enliven or animate uh, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And yes, for the audience thinking, well, how could Kubrick do all these flops? He didn't, that that doesn't happen in Hollywood. You just talk about the Wachowskis tapped into something amazing, or they ripped off Grant Morrison or Philip K. Dick. That's for debate. But 
They have not had a hit since the Matrix or the Matrix trilogy, yet they keep getting work. So you wonder, hmm, what are they selling? Somebody's allowing them to sell something, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, speaking of pain, not speaking of pain, I, I felt bad because you said you had to watch Eyes Wide Shut four times and you mm -hmm. call it Eyes Wide Shit. Well, that was a typo. That was a typo. Oh, a, a Freudian typo. Yeah. No but the, the I is right next to the U on the keyboard. Oh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and I was, uh, I would have to agree because I watched the movie when it came out. And I was, those days, I was pretty much a practicing ecumenical Roman Catholic. And I thought this movie was boring. It was soulless. It was mechanical. But and even later on, as I got into conspiracy and synchromysticism, I was like, okay, I, I like the symbology and all that, but I want to be at least entertain me while I'm watching this stuff. And it was, uh, it was dreadful. Um, do you think uh, this movie, do you think he really wanted to do AI or what was the purpose of Eyes Wide Shut? Or it almost seems like a big misdirection. Uh well, because he did do AI with Kubrick and with Spielberg, he produced Spielberg, so something got done there, although it's, you know, it doesn't seem to really fit with the Kubrickon very much. That's why I don't write about it. Eyes Wide Shut, he wanted to do for decades. He kept trying to get it made, or at least going through the early steps, a number of times throughout his career. And then he finally did, and it was his final movie. Uh, and... I think it is a fitting final movie for my thesis anyway. I mean, it's certainly the most uh, demonstrably bad Kubrick movie, even if <laughs> even if the Kubrick machinery, the Kubrickon has managed to somehow, it's like the Mandela effect, it somehow changed reality without changing the movie, but changed to create a different consensus right? that whether this movie is now a masterpiece. I find that very alienating, I have to say, but I mean, I shouldn't probably... I shouldn't because I know that the world is a crazy place and there's obviously much crazier things going on than people thinking that Eyes Wide Shut is a good movie. But um, it is useful to me in, in, in my thesis in a number of different ways, but the two obvious ones that I've just touched on being that uh, Kubrick's spell was powerful enough for him to make a demonstrably poor movie and still for it somehow to get hailed eventually it took many years and many viewings no doubt for many of these critics <laughs> and people to convince themselves and thereby the world that it was actually a, a swan song you know a great one of his last great movies um and then and so what i play with in gubricon is is that this principle or this methodology that i touched on already that kubrick wanted to make movies that were somehow soulless and empty that it reached its apotheosis with uh, eyes wide shut where he he became even more audacious and i, I this is a bit tongue-in-cheek i admit somewhat tongue-in-cheek but it's consistent with the thesis and he thought uh, how bad can I make a movie and still have people hail it as a masterpiece? Because then I've really got them. You know, there's a saying like that. If you can get people to believe something that they absolutely know is untrue, then you've got them. Right? There's, there's, there's nothing more. Right? They'll not question anything at, at that point. They've pretty much surrendered their, I won't say right, but their option 
to discernment. They've basically said, I don't need discernment. I don't want discernment. I want you to tell me what is a good movie, Mr. Kubrick. And I want you to tell me, Mr. Dr. Fauci, what's safe to put into my body. Right? That That's the complete annihilation of, of discernment. Uh, and it's replaced by just blanket consent. I just consent to what the the, the all powerful, all seeing eye dictates for me. You know, it's a world of you know men made gods or God made men. Whatever. Right. So anyway, well, quite fanciful, but uh, eyes wide shut. Yeah. So I think he did. I do think there's some truth in this that he he wanted to make each and every scene, particularly the early scenes as 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 tone deaf as he could now the initial <laughs> response was someone like kale was that he's just lost touch with human beings because he's lived in this mansion in england for so long and i think that's definitely part of it but i also think uh there's something else was going on that he was curious about experimenting with this can could he make scenes in which human beings didn't really act like human beings? I mean, people have said now, well, it's dreamlike. It's supposed to be like a dream, but it's <laughs> not. I mean, who the hell has dreams like that? <laughs> David, David Lynch can do dreamlike, right? And when, he, when he's good, but that's not dreamlike. That's something else. It's just really artificial and really stilted and really repellent. Um, so. So, yeah, I, I, I would say he was attempting to do something else, which has to do with this overall principle uh, of confounding the audiences, not just their expectations, but their actual experience while they're watching a movie. What's going on here? It's not working. This movie isn't working, but it's a Kubrick movie. Not only that, it's Kubrick's last movie. It has to be great. I have to make it great. How can I make this experience great? Otherwise, you know, my life... Is, is completely compromised because my whole life revolves around Kubrick being a great filmmaker. <laughs> uh, and so somehow the viewer will summon from within them the means by which to reforge Eyes Wide Shut as a subjective experience, as something that's meaningful, even though what's on the screen is deliberately intended to be not meaningless, but somehow hollow and inept and clunky and, and just wrong. Right? There's just something deeply <laughs> wrong here. Uh, so, as I said in the book, for for a movie that I absolutely have hated every time I've seen it, uh, I, I've never before gone back to it so many times. For the audience, this is simply a small part of the Cubercon. Uh, I love, of course, a topic. I love the simulation. Jason goes into that, into the psychology, the hive mind, and again, so much more from this excellent book as he writes, uh, this is not Deus Ex Machina, but this is God into the machine. We are being harvested and drained to create this new egregore for the coming century, this AI that's going to take the world, and uh, we're it's a big club, and we're not part of it. So, definitely read the book and jason they can get the book now at the usual usual suspects uh well uh i strongly discourage anyone who takes any of this conversation seriously not to use amazon ever again <laughs> exactly and uh, <laughs> uh the publishers are cooperating with this attempt to save people from jeff bezos by offering 
20% off the book, which maybe makes it com possibly competing with Amazon prices. I don't know. Uh, so there'll be a link. I don't know if, if you have a place where you can put it. Sure. The, yeah, the I can album. put it on the show notes. Send it to okay, me. Okay. So there's a link at my website, which will then take them to the publisher's site. And then there's a code, which I'll put, which is also my website. If they use that code, they'll get 20% off the, the, the list price. Uh, and as long as that's before the end of March, which is the official release date. So, yeah, that's what I encourage people to do if they do want to read it. Well, wonderful. Well, you heard it here. There'll be the link so you can get the book when it comes out. And uh, I highly, uh, I got a lot out of it uh, to try to understand the machine. Welcome to the machine, my son. What did you dream? It's all right. We told you what to dream. Let's dream something better. Well, Jason, as always, uh, really enjoyed talking to you, and as always, I look forward to your to your next work. Yeah, well, thanks, Miguel. It's, we've been doing this for quite some time, haven't we? So... <laughs> we still haven't gotten rid of us yet. <laughs> yet. Until next time, then. <laughs> Thank you. And there you have it, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. Jason always provides so much stirring research and revelation. In our second part, Jason will share which of Kubrick's films he liked and disliked and the reasons for this. We'll take a deep dive into A Clockwork Orange, you little droogs. We'll talk about Jung and how the Swiss magician influenced Stanley Kubrick. Jason will discuss the concepts of trauma and disassociation within Kubrick's Kubrickon and outside in each of our lives. And yes, we shall hit the topic of mind parasites, and much more. So please become a member for the full Psychic Antibiotic. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and higher level patrons. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. If you want to help via Bitcoin or other crypto, reach out to me for an address. Consider joining the Finding Hermes program, where we have bi-monthly meetings on Gnostic practices and rituals, as well as some cool Q&As. The Virtual Alexandria, the premier and only Gnostic online course, is also open for thee. Recently added the in-depth lesson, The Characteristics of Mary Magdalene. If you need help with uh, all or any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.